0: Do you crave daily motivation and want valuable tips for dealing with the stress of type 1 diabetes? Sign up for our daily email and start your day with a practical type 1 diabetes and mental health tip delivered straight to your inbox. It's like a personal boost for your day, from me to you. And best of all, it's absolutely free. Don't wait. Go to www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash tip and subscribe today. Because every day with type 1 diabetes deserves a healthy start. That's www.thediabetespsychologist.com forward slash tip. This podcast is brought to you by ultra rapid acting inhaled insulin. Do you ever struggle with how your diabetes healthcare team treats you? Do they talk down to you or make you feel like you're not doing a good enough job with your diabetes management? If that's the case, you are not alone. But that doesn't mean that all hope is lost. You have the ability to advocate for yourself. And advocating for yourself as a person with type 1 diabetes is so important. Welcome to the Live Free with T1D podcast, brought to you by the Diabetes Psychologist. This is the only podcast where we teach you how to build your type 1 diabetes stress management plan like a sailboat. You are the captain, your diabetes management is the hull, your mindset is the sails, your behavior is the rudder, and your support team is the crew. When you build your sailboat correctly, you will have smooth sailing in your life with type 1 diabetes. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Heyman. And on this episode of the podcast, I coach Laura. Laura's daughter sometimes feels like she is not good enough in the eyes of her diabetes care team. They don't listen to her and they don't take what she has to say into consideration. In fact, sometimes they give her bad advice. I help Laura to see that she's more empowered than she thinks she is. And I give her some tips that she can use both for herself and for her daughter to find empowerment with their healthcare team and in the life with type 1 diabetes. If you want to learn how to better advocate for yourself with your healthcare team, this episode will help. Laura, thank you much for, so much for joining me today uh, from Australia. It's an afternoon here in California, and it's, I know it's early morning in Australia, so I appreciate your time, and uh, you know I lo- love this time difference. So let's, uh, let's dive in. So I know that you have a child with type 1 diabetes, so I want to hear a little bit about your story with diabetes and what's going on for you guys right now.
1: Okay, well, great. Thanks for having me. And hi, everyone from Victoria, Australia, most beautiful place in the world aside from California, I bet. Um, I just wanted to sort of give you a brief background. Um, We were in lockdown in our state. It was the world's most locked down place um, during covid And I noticed my daughter was losing weight and I said to my husband, I think there's something going on. And he's like, nah, she just will have found an Instagram thing. It'll just be a teenage, whatever. She was 11, but I knew, I knew straight away that there was something seriously going on. Uh, She was going to the toilet a lot. As I said, she was losing weight. She was a bit listless and pale and she um, had a particular odor. Um, So I took her down to the doctor and said, I think you should test this kid's blood sugar. And he refused to do it because he said some kids are afraid of needles. And I said, I don't think this kid will be anyway. He tested um, and he couldn't get a reading. Her blood sugar was so high. So off we went to um, the emergency room and within two, three, four minutes, we had the diagnosis of type 1. And that's where our journey really began. That was three years ago.
0: And how old was Jar at the time?
1: Uh, she was 11 years old and um, was very tall for her age, um, had been in, you know, great, perfect health her whole life and then suddenly it just kind of hit hit us like a, a bolt from the blue. Um, so then after, you know, only a week sort of in hospital, she was home and we were sort of left to work out how to manage our pens and bolusing and overnights and highs and lows and it was a really kind of yeah, wild roller coaster ride.
0: <laughs> so what is the biggest challenge that you're having right now helping your daughter to navigate this roller coaster ride you're talking about?
1: I think initially the um the education and the steep learning curve for us all as a family about what type one diabetes actually is and how it can be managed. Um and over the three years we've got used to, you know, counting carbohydrates and bolusing and measuring and dealing with um um, high blood sugar and low blood sugar, and Amy's actually at a pretty good um, HbA1c level now. So everyone's really happy with where we've got to. But the biggest challenge that we faced right from the get-go and continue to face is the relationship. It's kind of a triangle relationship between the clinicians, so the doctors and the educators and the dieticians, um, the parents who, you know, we we parent for. Um, independence. So we've always put Amy and Amy's choice making at the centre of our approach to T1D. Even though she was only eleven initially, she was a you know a very independent child, um, and the child herself. So sometimes there's a a, a real difficulty in um, the use of language, in the use of statistics and data um, to manipulate. I think the families into the outcome that the clinicians would prefer without there really being a deep understanding of this being a human being um, who just happens to have T1D and not the other way around.
0: Yeah. Can you give me an example of how how this is playing out with your relationship with your healthcare team and Amy's healthcare team?
1: Sure. So um, every quarter we have to go to a clinic. Um, In the clinic, There are a a wide variety of people who are experiencing the full range of the human condition. (laughs) Um, uh, There are people who are old and infirm who are suffering clearly from respiratory distress. There are psychiatric patients. There are people who have got uh, wounds from operations and accidents. Um, There are people who are ill with chronic illnesses which don't require hospitalisation. So, immediately you walk in the door the children in the clinic with t1d are among people who are really very sick and it sets the scene i think psychologically for the children to feel you know like they're at the edge they're they're on the edge all the time and i think that that's an unhelpful psychological situation for them to be in and then when you go around the back um, and the paediatrician comes out and sort of looks you up and down, and then says, "Well, this is what your stats say, and what went wrong here, and why have we found ourselves in these situations?" It's, it's, it's upsetting for the for the kids because they feel like they're trying to do their best. Obviously, like they haven't died—that's rule one in our house. Just you know, stay alive, and the rest is negotiable. Um, but yeah, when we get in with the clinicians, they can be very um data driven and they don't really appear to have i don't know whether it's like the empathy but they don't appear to understand how important it is to establish a relationship with a child um in a clinical setting like that they seem really really focused on the outcome without understanding that it's it's a it's a parenting role as much as it is a clinical role to bring a child into maturity with um, a lifelong condition like T1D.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's, and that's a big challenge. Is like it's just wanting to be seen as a human, wanting to be seen as a person who happens to have a condition, and also, I think that I think you bring up a good point of, you know, we want kids to have an image of themselves that they are capable of doing whatever they want to do, and that diabetes is certainly a medical condition, but it's not a not a not not that's not, It's not a death sentence at least there's not, not anymore. We're in, a, we're in a very different place than we were 50, 60, 80 years ago. Um, and you know and really have, how do you send that message to your child when the message is being sent from the medical system, both in the doctor's office as well as in the mm-hmm. clinic room where that may not be the case. And that can be a big challenge. I think that in, you really want to figure out how you can advocate for your daughter and also in, empower your daughter to advocate for herself in that process.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I don't know whether you've experienced this in conversation with other parents as well, but in our culture, we have an expression called that mother. And she's the mother that raises the issues that everybody else is too scared to raise. So she's the one that stands at the school board and Uh says, let the kids read the books. What's the worst that can happen? She's the one that says to the pediatrician, don't stand over us. Sit down over there. You don't need to make yourself feel big. Um, and and unfortunately, there are, you know, um, those kinds of monikers that that really strong advocates. That comes from a good place in our hearts, though, as mothers, particularly, um, do get in our culture. And um, I, you know, I, I, I'm really aware of helping Amy understand that that's just a failing on somebody else's part, but also you know, to try and avoid being branded as that patient or that client um, because you know that the outcomes that you receive and the, and the um, supports and stuff that you receive after being, you know, given that name or given that moniker are um, are not always the best. And we found that in particular when during lockdowns and, and now because everybody's discovered telehealth and they think it's the greatest thing ever. Um, that doctors have become much more clipped and much less human in telehealth than they have been in person. And we had a situation where I was being yelled at by the paediatrician and I said to her, please don't talk to me like that. And she said, if you're not going to participate in this um, circumstance on my terms, then um, I will take action. And I felt that that was a real threat to you know my daughter's care and so I said, well in that case I choose to terminate this call and then I got in contact with the hospital and they were very apologetic and they agreed that telehealth isn't necessarily the greatest thing for the management of chronic illnesses by parents um, because it's it's really you know it divorces the clinicians from the from the human that they're dealing with um yeah so that's the kind of issue that we do face.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you have approached this from a, a place where it doesn't really work very well of, of kind of confronting the issue head on. Um, and before <laughs> we go on to talking about ways that you can, other with other ways that you might approach it, I'm curious, how is this situation impacting you? And also how is it impacting Amy in how she is dealing with and thinking about and how you're dealing with and thinking about life with type 1 diabetes in your family? <laughs>
1: Yeah, really good point. So um, my husband is very, uh, he's a conducive. He's not a um, combative. And so I've learned a lot from him. We've been together for a really long time now about how different people uh, respond to very direct upfront sort of people like me. And so when I get feedback from people like you know you're very um, upfront, you're very direct, I don't take it personally. I just go, okay, well that's the kind of person that needs me to take a different um, tack. And that's kind of easier to do in my professional life and in my personal life with my relationships and with my families. But I do find it difficult when I'm in a um, a clinical setting, Because I feel like assumptions are being made about me and my family um, without the questions being asked at their end. So I I feel like it's a little bit of an injustice. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, what we are able to really benefit from is when we leave the clinic and we drive in the car on the way home, because we live in a regional area and it's quite a long drive, Amy will actually often tell me things that she hasn't already told me. And we can share our experiences of that particular clinic and we always try and put a positive spin on it. So even if the clinician has made Amy cry or if we've had a you know really negative experience with a dietitian or whatever, we can say to ourselves, okay, well, maybe they didn't express that so well, but let's look at what they were trying to achieve and see if we agree with that. And if we do agree with that, we go, okay, well, how do we put it into our own words and how do we act on it over the next 12 weeks at home and and in Amy's self-care and management? And then when we go back next time, we say, okay, this is what we've done for the last 12 weeks. What do you think? And later, like lately in the last year or so, that's been working so much better. Um, And I think it's a matter of maturity for Amy and her ability to synthesize information and to think about things, you know, as she's getting older. And also me sort of calming down and coming to terms with the fact that, you know, my child's not necessarily on the edge of death every second of the day and that I can live a life not in a heightened psychological state, which is, I think, where I was for the first couple of years.
0: Yeah, and it's, that's a normal place to be, even though it's not very much fun.
1: No. <laughs>
0: but, but, I, but, but I think I think that you bring up a really, really good point. And that is that, you know, as we all know, you know, diabetes is never a do-it-yourself condition. And we have lots, there's lots of areas where we need support, you know, certainly mm-hmm. from friends and family. So you're providing that support to Amy, hopefully from her healthcare team. Um, and that's always kind of a wild card and figuring out whether that's actually going to be a reality. Um, and then of course, from other people with diabetes and from, from people in her life together, and there may be sometimes, unfortunately, I wish this wasn't the case where the support that she needs is not going to come from that healthcare team and Mm. they're going to be, they're going to either give, you know, blow her off or they're going to make her cry or do something that is clearly not supportive. But to have you as that sounding board to be able to really, one, reflect on it and process that, but also come up with some really good solutions and then co- go back to the healthcare team and kind of show them, you know, we know what we're doing. We're, we, tr- we tried this, we did some experimentation, and look what happened. Um, mm-hmm. And going, in, It's almost like not even asking for their approval, but just letting them know, this is what we tried, this is what happened, and this is how we want to move forward. Um, that may be a little bit of a shock to them it's not directly confronting their, their approach we, it, while it, while it is by helping them to kind of see that, wow, these people have it together. Um, yeah. And that is a, I, I think an important thing.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think,
0: that, I think, but I think that you fill in the gap for the support that she's not getting at her healthcare team is important. And that's a lot important lesson for us to all learn is that while it, in an ideal world, we ha- we would have support from all around and it would be e- equal and equally strong. That's not, not always going to be the case. And so when that doesn't happen, having the ability to lean on other parts of our support system, and for Amy, that's you, um, is just critical. When thinking about expanding your diabetes management toolkit, you may not be thinking about insulin. There haven't been a lot of new insulins to put in your toolbox. Sure, there are different brands, but nothing really unique when it comes to insulin delivery, except for Afreza. Afreza Insulin Human Inhalation Powder is unique because it's the only ultra-rapid-acting inhaled insulin available. It's a man-made, orally-inhaled insulin and is used to control high blood sugar in adults with diabetes without the need for mealtime insulin injections. Once you inhale frezza into your lungs using the inhaler, it will start reducing your blood sugar in about 12 minutes and it's out of your bloodstream within 1.5 to 3 hours, depending on the dose. Keep in mind that Afrezza must be used with basal insulin in people who have type 1 diabetes. To learn more about inhaled insulin, visit www.afreza.com. That's A-F-R-E-Z-Z-A com. is a rapid-acting inhaled insulin used to control high blood sugar in adults with diabetes mellitus. Afresa may cause serious side effects, including sudden lung problems, low potassium, and heart failure. Afresa is not for patients with chronic lung disease, such as asthma or COPD. Tell your doctor if you smoke, recently stopped smoking, have ever had kidney or liver problems, a history of lung cancer, or if you're pregnant or breastfeeding. Most common side effects are low blood sugar, cough, and sore throat. Severe low blood sugar can be fatal. Do not replace basal insulin with a Fresa. A Frezza is not for use to treat diabetic ketoacidosis. Do not take a Fresa if you are allergic to insulin. Talk to your doctor before changing your Fresa dose. Blood sugar may need to be checked more frequently.
1: Yeah, and it's really, um, you know, it's the... it's. It can be really hard on the one hand when you're sort of dying inside yourself because you never dreamed that this could possibly happen to you know the child that you grew. Like it's a really difficult thing for a mother to um, to come to terms with on a psychological level, but then also to have to be that calm, cool, collected advocate, that one that interprets all of the information, um, the one that really holds the family together as well, because. Um, you know, that it just does often fall to the to the mother to fill all of those gaps that are left. Um, and that's, I think that's a real, you know, that's why mothers should be so much more treasured in our society than they actually are, because they do do a lot of unsung work. But One of the things that really worked for us was when we came across a diabetes educator. So she's a registered nurse and a registered nurse practitioner, which is another level of education above RN in Australia. She's also a counsellor. So she's done an adolescent psychology postgraduate degree, and she's a diabetes educator with type 1 diabetes herself. And she's just got the best way with the adolescent kids. Um, she just says, you know, oh, I nearly died three times last night, you know, sort of thing, and just really um, gets the kids laughing and understanding that, at, you know, they're human beings first and foremost. And when we met this particular educator, Amy's attitude to her diabetes took a U turn literally overnight. Her HbA1c was up. Um, you know verging on um, poorly controlled and within 12 weeks it was back down to 6.5 which is slap bang where we want it for her age and her um, you know her growth and I, I seriously couldn't believe the turnaround I was so thrilled and I said to her you know this this woman appears to be you know quite cluey she she sounds like she knows what she's talking about And Amy gave me the most epic eye roll I've ever seen in my life. And she said she's the first person that really got it. Wow. Um, So I encourage anyone who's listening, who's having, you know, perhaps a bit of disconnect with their current clinicians to keep going, keep going until you find someone that suits your child and don't underestimate how important it is to talk to someone who's an adult who has t 1d themselves and who has knowledge of childhood development, because it's just been an absolute game changer for
0: us. Absolutely. You know, I think that having, having clinicians who have diabetes, while there aren't enough of us, um, there are, it it is a game changer and it's really, it really allows that door to be open. And also it's so important, Laura, and you, you know, this from this story to remind yourself or remind our listeners that, that you are the captain of your diabetes management team, right? and and for you, it's you and Amy together are the captains, mm-hmm. um, and that you have the right to call call the shots. And I mean, and in most instances, you know, this I, I cer- certainly know that there are some times when this is not possible, but w- in, in lots of times, you you have the ability to choose which doctor you go to, and choose which nurse and which educator you go to. And if one's not working out for you, that you have every right to let them know that you don't want to be treated this way um that may not be that may not be responded to in a great way but um it is what it is and then also to be able to find a new clinician if necessary
1: yeah absolutely and i think the really funny thing that i remember from about a year ago um we had a um appointment with our general practitioner and he had a um registrar in with him so a a trainee doctor and she was very good she was very sweet she said to Amy right so um, I'm really interested in your experience and I want you to you know communicate to me as though I'm you know just a friend that you've met and uh, she said to Amy I want to know who manages your type one for you and Amy said I do and you know she was a 13 year old girl at that stage and I kind of had a bit of a look around the room, and the GP was, had a massive smile on his face because he's been a great advocate for us. Um, and what the registrar had meant was, which of the diabetes clinics do you go to?
0: Oh, and it, was,
1: <laughs> it was a really good moment for everyone because um, we recognised that Amy knew that she's the captain of her team, and I'm I'm really mm-hmm. her six. And the GP was like, this girl's going to go far. And the registrar learned an important le- lesson then too, which is, you know, these these kids uh, probably know much more than they're letting on about their own condition and their own management. Um, they've probably tried all of the hacks in the book. I mean, they get on Instagram and they get on Facebook and they get on the internet and they find out all of these things that they can do and they do them. Um, And as parents and as clinicians, we really do need to empower the kids to be making good decisions in their own best interest, because we don't have them under our wing for long. And if we let them go before they're ready, you know, that's on us, that's not on on them. So, yeah, I I really think it's important that we, as I said earlier, that we parent our kids with chronic illnesses and T1D in particular for independence, that they grow to trust themselves, to experiment with the technology and experiment with the, um, uh, you know, the holy trinity of (laughs) uh, food, insulin and exercise, and um, that they in some way can find some um, pleasure from managing their circumstances well, just as anybody else in life gets pleasure from managing their lives
0: well. Absolutely. And I think that you know when you're going to see your doctor, I think there's an important lesson here is that because you're the captain of the team, you need to be calling the shots. And so you, sh- you should be going into your doctor's appointments with a list of questions, a list of needs you have met, whether that's an insulin refill or whether that's a, that you're feeling burnt out or that you are trying to figure out how to you know count carbs for a certain meal. And you know you really drive that appointment because I think the moment that you allow um, the clinician to drive the appointment, not that they're being malicious at all, but they're going to do it on their terms and and to meet their benchmarks. When you have specific needs and be able to go in, go in there with your needs to be met, and then they have to respond to that. And I think that that's a great way, a great strategy to increase the chances that you're going to be successful in getting the support that you need from your doctor. Um, And again, if it doesn't happen, then as you did with that pediatrician. And it's time to move on and, and find someone new who can't support us in the way that we need it. So it, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's, it's an important one. And I think that, Laura, you're doing a great job helping Amy to navigate this and empowering her to be the best advocate for herself.
1: Thank you. And I think that is a really great tip. Um, and, uh, you know, if if we had been told by um, the diabetes educators or the social workers that the best way to approach it is on the front foot and go in with a list of questions and, you know, um, I think our journey would have started completely differently. But as it was, I felt like we were kind of swooped and, and almost drowning in all of the, you know, medical, technical, you know, drama of the thing. Um, And it did take us a couple of years to sort of emerge from feeling like we had a responsibility to them and to have the confidence to understand that our responsibility is, well, Amy's responsibility is to herself and my responsibility is in support uh, to her. Um, And I I would absolutely take that piece of information um, and run with it now, like I would I would happily sit down with Amy before a clinic and go, okay, what are our three dot points? What are we going to talk about? What are we going to approach? What information are we going to ask for? What kind of supports are there? Um, And really, you know, now that we've got that baseline of understanding how the, you know, the whole shebang works, really be able to challenge our clinicians to step up into the spaces that we need them still.
0: I cannot end the podcast on a better note than that. So on that note, I want to thank you, Laura, for your time and, and uh, you know, keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job for Amy and I hope you inspired many many listeners to do the great job for themselves and advocating for themselves and for their children with diabetes. So thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Mark. And thanks so much for all the work you do. It's so important.
0: You bet. At the end of every episode, I give you a plan of action that you can start using today in your life to happen diabetes. To reduce your stress and find the freedom and flexibility you're looking for. And today, your plan of action is make an agenda for your next endocrinology appointment. Make a list of the things you want to talk about, and they will not leave the room until you get addressed by your doctor. So often, we'll feel so rushed in these appointments, and having a list in your hand will help you make your voice heard. Thanks so much for joining me on the Live Free with T1D podcast, where I teach you how to build your diabetes management plan like a sailboat, so you could have smooth sailing in your life with type one diabetes. And I'll see you back here next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.